0: Live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris Dagenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, October 6th, 2012. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. Tonight I have Sword Brethren here with me. We're going to talk about a, an unsung, it, it's well little sung American hero, Lewis Thomas McFadden. This man was an educated and intelligent man who stood against the international bankers as a United States congressman. He, unlike Ron Paul and other charlatans of today, Lewis McFadden named the Jews, he named the devil behind the machinery. He had no fear, and he told it like he saw it. He was an educated man. He was a banker himself. He was probably murdered. It's evident that he was poisoned and, and murdered. And, and, um, and he, was, he, he was basically moneyed out of office. Standing against the Jews in his day cost him a lucrative career and probably an, a, a retirement, a comfortable retirement. Tonight, we're going to start by presenting the information on the Wikipedia page concerning Lewis McFadden because that itself, I I know it's Wikipedia and Wikipedia lies about a lot of things. And and, um, the Lewis McFadden Wikipedia page is by itself very revealing as to the character of the man once you understand our, and when I, see, when I say our, I mean Christian identity adherence in general. Once you understand our position on the international bankers and the Jewish role in society at that level, and, and Louis McFadden is basically, uh, I mean, everything that we believe about history, he was fighting and, and understood 70 years ago, the Jewish financing of the Bolshevik Revolution, the, the treachery of, of Wall Street's role in that, and, and a million other sins. Lewis McFadden knew about them 70 years ago and stood against them. Uh, I'm sorry, it's practically 80 years ago. And and, um, and basically, most Americans know little about them today. And, and that's pretty sad. Hello, Brian. Hello, Sword Brother.
1: Hello. Thank you. How,
0: how are we doing tonight? Do you have anything I'm to say? Right. Any oh. opening remarks about Lewis McFadden or... or uh,
1: you said that Louis McFadden, he, he came out and he named the Jew. He, he, he even had a platform to keep Jews out of the Republican Party. And people like Ron Paul, they can't even bring themselves to vote no when it comes to expelling James Trafficking from the House of Representatives. He had to abstain. The only no vote was Gary Condit. So, so much for being a man of principle. He, he couldn't even vote his conscience, assuming he had one. Any
0: relation to Jim Condit? No, probably not. Okay. Well, well, do you want to read the Wikipedia page on Louis McFadden, or should I? It, All right, I'll start out. The, the attitude in this Wikipedia page, in, in many aspects, is quite interesting. Uh, and that's why I thought it might be a good read.
1: The tone that they've taken with this article reveals how they, how they feel about the man. It's, it's, it's very telling. Louis Thomas McFadden, July 25th, 1876, to October 1st, 8th, 1936 was a Republican member of the United States House of Representatives from Pennsylvania. McFadden was born in Granville Center, Troy Township, Bradford County, Pennsylvania. He graduated from Warner's Commercial College, currently known as the Elmira Business Institute in Elmira, New York. In 1892, he entered the employ of the First National Bank in Canton, Pennsylvania. In 1899, he was elected cashier. And became its president on January 11, 1916, serving until 1925. So back then, you were elected to a higher position in a bank.
0: Well, well yeah, banks banks were. Um, if the shareholders voted, hmm. you know, if the shareholders holders or, or the board of directors would vote to fill particular offices, I'm certain a, a lot of. Um, a lot of corporations. Well, well, a lot of corporations still do business like that, but we don't really see it. you know, the general public doesn't really see it. But, but, um, yeah, yeah, corporations actually ha- hold elections to fill many positions.
1: It seems though that four or five people who own the lion's share of the um or the the majority of the shares, they have a disproportionate pull, and they end up just basically appointing a crony. Well, well, right.
0: There's a there's a lot of different types of corporations, and there's a lot of different structures that there's um, class A voting shares some corporations might have, and class B shares, which are the shares available to the public, so, so that the public can never actually have a say in the running of the company. I, I mean, there's there's a lot of different structures. I'm not a corporate lawyer by any means. I don't know much about it, but but um, it's very possible. It, it's it 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 was common at that time for corporations to to vote for banks to vote to fill offices, yes.
1: Hmm. All right. McFadden served as treasurer of the Pennsylvania Bankers Association in 1906 and 1907, and as president in 1914 and 1915. He was appointed in 1914 by the Agricultural Societies of the State of Pennsylvania as the trustee of Pennsylvania State College.
0: And, and this background is important because this man's not no... no, no he, he's no... Um, He's no dummy. He's no trailer park idiot that's just pointing fingers at Jews and, and raging about the international
1: bankers, right? So he's what a banker the, himself, so he knows what, how banks work.
0: What, which is the way that the Jewish media loves to portray right-wing patriots who do those things. Uh, I mean, who, who complain about the international bankers and the Jews. That, that's the way we're portrayed, right? And, and but, here's, a, here's an educated man who has... A, an excellent reputation in his field, and his field happens to be banking. And um, I would say that, you know, he, he should be a respected voice when it comes to assessments of the banking system, right? I, I mean, it's pretty obvious.
1: They would just say he's a Jew baiter. So if you're a Lothrop's daughter or a Madison Grant, you're a scientific racist. This guy, they call him a, a suit-and-tie bigot. And if you're just a, a plain old country man from the hills, you're an ignorant bumpkin redneck. So no matter who you are, what background you come from, they have a term with which to slur you or smear you. His political,
0: 19- His political career. Yes.
1: In 1914, McFadden was elected as a Republican representative to the 64th Congress and to nine succeeding Congresses. He served as chairman of the United States House Committee on Banking and Currency during the 66th seventy-first Congresses, or nineteen twenty to nineteen thirty-one, though re-elected without opposition in nineteen thirty-two, he lost to the Democratic nominee in nineteen thirty-four. He was an unsuccessful candidate for nomination in nineteen
0: thirty-six. So, so Biden-
1: six,
0: he had a banking background, and six Congresses that the majority party in six Congresses were comfortable making him the chairman of the banking committee,
1: right? Uh, I mean, that's.
0: It's obvious that this man was well-respected.
1: And today he'd never be the chairman of that committee because he's the wrong race. Right. McFadden's main official legacy was the working on and passing of the McFadden Act of 1927, limiting federal branch banks to the city in which the main branch operates. The act sought to give national banks competitive equality with state-chartered banks by letting national banks operate branch banks to the extent permitted by state law. The McFadden Act specifically prohibited interstate branching by allowing national banks to branch only within the state in which they were situated, although the Regal Neal Interstate Banking and Branching Efficiency Act of 1994 repealed this provision of the McFadden Act. It specified that the state law continues to control interstate branching or branching within a state's borders for both state and national banks. McFadden is also remembered as a vociferous foe of the Federal Reserve, which he claimed was created and operated by European banking interests who conspired to economically control the United States. On June 10, 1932, McFadden made a 25-minute speech before the House of Representatives in which he accused the Federal Reserve of deliberately causing the Great Depression. McFadden also claimed that Wall Street bankers funded the Bolshevik revolution through the Federal Reserve Banks and the European Central Banks with which it cooperated. McFadden moved to impeach President Herbert Hoover in 1932 and he was also introduced and he also introduced a resolution bringing conspiracy charges against the board of governors of the Federal Reserve. The impeachment resolution was defeated by a vote of 361 to 8. It was seen as a big vote of confidence to President Hoover from the House. According to Time Magazine, McFadden was denounced and condemned by all Republicans for his contemptible gesture. The Central Press Association reported that he was virtually read out of his party, had his committee posts taken away from him, was ostracized by Republicans and called crazy. Senator David Reed, Republican Pennsylvania, said, we intend to act to all practical purposes, as though McFadden had died. Now, so now these,
0: they, that these it, it's very, um, you know, Wikipedia tries, that they, they, they try to keep a respectable tone, but they're falling short of agreeing that McFadden was a nut the way this paragraph is worded concerning McFadden's feelings towards the Federal Reserve, the European banking interests, and, and the Great Depression, and, and the Bolshevik Revolution. I, I mean, they, they, they lay it out. They, they state the facts, but they do it in a way that, that the average reader would think, yeah, he must have been nuts. Yeah, yeah he must have been crazy.
1: Although it seems that he was the, um, what, the head of their banking committee for over two decades, and then suddenly they took that away from him because he wouldn't play ball. Well, well, a man
0: that was a respected banker that, that was a um, a leader in his industry and goes to Congress and and, and after several years, um, begins to blow the whistle on his own industry, an industry which he should be an expert in. Uh, I mean, there aren't too many patriotic bankers in Congress at this time, I'm certain.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, I mean, I can't name them. Of, of course, I don't have that data at my fingertips, but... I'm certain that if there are other bankers in Congress, they're probably not as, as caring about the nation as Louis McFadden. It, it's um, it, it's it it shows the power of the, the vociferous minority and how the Jews have basically managed to shout patriots down and have them stigmatized with slurs and 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 that's that they're expert at that. And they always seem to gain the momentum and the inertia. In
1: 1933, he introduced House Resolution No. 158, which included articles of impeachment for the Secretary of the Treasury, two assistant secretaries of the Treasury, the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve, and the officers and directors of its 12 regional banks. And Americans were probably too busy going to the movies and having fun to care about any of this, weren't they?
0: In 1934? Uh, I, don't, I, don't know, 1934. I don't know if Americans were as distracted in 1934, but Jewish control of the media was already pretty complete. Mm-hmm. In
1: 1934, he made several anti-Semitic comments from the floor of the House and in newsletters to his constituents, wherein he cited the protocols of the elders of Zion, claimed the Roosevelt administration was controlled by Jews, and objected to Henry Morgenthau, Jr., a Jew becoming Secretary of the Treasury. So what's wrong with that? On a factual basis, though, the Roosevelt administration was controlled by Jews. So the article doesn't say he made false statements. It just says he, he made anti-Semitic statements, meaning statements the Jews didn't like, because they didn't like their control being exposed.
0: Well, well, well that's absolutely true, that
1: they don't. And,
0: and most, you know, a lot of Jews don't even understand Jewish control. And, and automatically, well, when they're confronted with it, what move to accuse people of anti-Semitism, right? Because they're proud of the Jews who they see, you know, in the Jewish mind, they, they see these other Jews work hard to reach, or, or they perceive that they worked hard, right? To reach these high positions, and, and they don't understand the conspiracy themselves. I, I mean, it's just like most Catholics don't understand the treachery of the pathology,
1: right? Mm-hmm. Drew Pearson claimed in his Washington merry-go-round column that in a publication by the American fascist Silver Shirts, McFadden had been extensively quoted in support of Adolf Hitler. In September, the Nazi tabloid Der Sturmer praised McFadden. He was also lauded by the publications of William Dudley Pelly, leader of the Silver Shirts, on several occasions. Now, now Drew Pearson that, was a
0: communist. Drew Pearson, Drew Pearson was, a, was a communist. He, he was... Um, McCarthy exposed him and McCarthy was right about it. It can be demonstrated that he was a tool of, of the NKVD and the Communist Party.
1: Funny that Wiki doesn't mention that at all.
0: Well, well of course not. That that they you know, even the um even the Wikipedia page on, on Drew Pearson will tell you about his yeah, You know, the, the discrediting things that he did late in his career, and, and they'll tell you about the, – the, there was actually a fistfight between McCarthy and Drew Pearson.
1: Hmm. At, so at they're say that Drew Pearson wrote a number of articles praising and lauding Flegentio Batista, right-wing dictator in Cuba, and at the time he was living in a penthouse owned by a Batista crony, and that Batista was basically giving him money and, and subsidizing his lifestyle. So not only is he a communist, he's an intellectually, academically dishonest one who's betraying his own side to live in luxury.
0: Oh, there, there are several episodes in, in late in Drew Pearson's career that more than demonstrate that um, he was intellectually bankrupt.
1: I mean, if you're a communist, there's no way you praise Batista, is there?
0: No, and, and he had communist ties and, and ties to known communist agents all throughout his career.
1: So he's pointing out that William Dudley Pelley is quoting and supporting McFadden, but that doesn't necessarily make McFadden a fascist, although there's nothing wrong with being a fascist. But if a fascist quotes your work, that, that doesn't mean you asked him to quote the work, does it?
0: Well, well absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the, the thing there is that the fascists were the only – I don't want to say major. That they were the only significant political movement in the United States that understood the the, the treachery, aside from the America First Committee, that understood the treachery of the, the the people behind the Federal Reserve and 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 the the crimes that the Federal Reserve and the international bankers had committed. And, and McFadden evidently understood that Adolf Hitler's struggle was against those same internationalist, Jewish, globalist forces, and, and, and he sought to, to preserve Germany free from, from their rule and, and their tyranny, which evidently failed in the war, right? The, the, um, the fascists are the only people that got it. They're the only people that got it, that understood it.
1: Mm. You know, for, William for Dudley traveled extensively throughout Russia immediately after the Bolshevik Revolution, and he concluded that Jews and communists were plotting to take over the world.
0: Well, well, the Jews are going to try to pin the fascist label or or make fascist connections to anyone who would stand against internationalism and globalism and, and the central banking system because they're all tied together, right? And internationalism, whether it be capitalism or communism, and, and, and the idea of globalism and are all tied to the international banking system. Anyone who stands against inter- the international banking system and the central, the, the central bank system as we have it is going to be slandered, a fascist, by the Jews. Absolutely. And, and oh. their media has made fascists such a dirty word that the general public has demonized people slandered as fascists.
1: And Basically, these people saw the transformation that was ongoing in the country at the time. They recognized where it was going to take the country. They were opposed to that because, you know, any right-minded person would be opposed to that, and the Jews slandered and ruined them for it.
0: Well, well when, when we present this speech that, that McFadden made to um, the House of Representatives on June 10, 1932, it, it's quite obvious from the speech that he knew exactly the machinations that the Jews were were um, that the Jewish bankers, I should say, were were, were perpetrating through the the central banking system.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: He understood it all.
1: All right. On election day that year, he lost to Charles E. Dietrich by approximately two thousand votes. This was the only election between 1912 and 1950 when the district elected a Democrat, according to McFadden's jewish telegraphic agency obituary in june 1935 he announced his candidacy for president with the backing of an organization called the independent republican national christian gentile committee on a platform to quote keep the jew out of control of the republican party quote not garnering much support for his presidential bid he tried to win back his congressional seat he lost the nomination by a wide margin to colonel albert G. Rutherford, who went on to win the general election. And I wonder, this Jewish Telegraphic Agency, are are they giving us an honest quote that this this group was actually called the Independent Republican National Christian Gentile Committee, and its platform was keeping Jews out of the Republican Party? Have you been able to verify that this Independent Republican National Christian Gentile Committee even existed?
0: No, I haven't. And, and, you know, I had this article in front of me This article is from the Jewish News Archive, it ran November 8th, 1934, it's from the publication in question, and it states, it's datelined JTA, Jewish Telegraphic uh, Association, Tawanda, Pennsylvania, November 7th, Tawanda's in, in Northeast Pennsylvania near the New York border, November 7th, 1934. Well, and, and I quote, what was regarded as the political obituary of Lewis T. McFadden, Republican, was written at the polls here yesterday when voters brought an unceremonious end to the anti-Semites 20 years in Congress, dumping him overboard in favor of C. Emler-Dietrich, Democrat, who received a plurality of about 2,000 votes. Not a Jewish tear was shed at the figurative beer of this notorious exponent of bigotry, whose loud-voiced attacks on Jewry have won him its enviable, unenviable support of Nazis, silver shirts, and other anti-Semitic elements. Last January, addressing the House on a monetary bill, he assailed the administration for its monetary policy. That would be the um, the Hoover administration. No, this no, would have
1: been Roosevelt by the time. That would have
0: been the Roosevelt administration, right, by this time. January 1934 would have to be. Charging it was instigated by, quote, the money Jews of Wall Street and foreign parts. He also reaffirmed his belief in the authenticity of the forged. Protocols of the elders of
1: Zion. So
0: so of There's course that word
1: again, forged. They yeah, yeah, right. Forged. They never <laughs> called a fake.
0: Right. If they're forged, then they're copies of, of they're unauthorized copies of actual documents, right. In July, the national the Republican National Committee drew a blast of criticism on itself by selecting McSadden to fire the opening shot in the political campaign. In a speech sponsored by the committee, the congressman said don't spend your time worrying over the alleged tyrannies of Hitler. Look first to your own case. In September, Julius Streicher's Der Sturmer carried a story from its New York correspondent, lauding McFadden, as one of the few congressmen fearless enough to speak out openly against the Jews. Well, that's well, a, a star on, on his lapel. However, <clears throat> there's no mention in this article of the the um, the committee in question in the Wikipedia article, and, and they cite this article, so, so I don't know where they're getting it from, but, but there's obviously some problems with the Wikipedia article.
1: And the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, they seem to obsess about this guy. They've written articles about him a dozen times in 1934, and as for that Independent Republican National Christian Gentile Committee, when you attempt to find it on Google, all the hits are just other sites that have replicated this article, so that there, there's nothing original, there, there's no evidence I can find that this committee actually existed. Most of the hits come right back to Wiki, or sites run by Jews that are just copy and paste of that article.
0: McFadden bam, oh. McFadden <laughs> renews attacks on Roosevelt, following McFadden, anti-Semitic congressman dies.
1: The article about his death in the Jewish Telegraphic Agency is dated October 4, 1936. Former Representative Louis T. McFadden of Pennsylvania, whose attacks on the Jews were instrumental in securing his defeat in 1934, died last night of coronary thrombrosis in the hospital for the ruptured and crippled. He was 60 years old. In January 1935, he announced his candidacy for president, with the backing of an organization called the Independent Republican National Christian Gentile Committee on a platform to keep the Jew out of control of the Republican Party. Before his defeat in the 1935 elections, Mr. McFadden had been a representative for 20 years. His anti-Semitic speeches in the House, printed in the congressional record, were frank through the mails. Strong Jewish protests were aroused when McFadden, following a bolt from the Republican ranks when he demanded impeachment, of President Hoover was restored in the party's good graces. The Philadelphia Council of the American Jewish Congress was active in the fight. Hmm. Here's another one. um, L.T. McFadden, U.S. fascist ally, beaten at the polls. November 8, 1934, Jewish Telegraphic Agency. Pennsylvania congressman who attacked Jews is defeated. Notice Fairmont Sweet Butter, it's introduction Brian, over Brian, 20, Brian, so-
0: Brian, 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 you're reading the ad, and that's the article I just read, right?
1: Oh, that's, yeah, okay, I thought, because it talked about the Mosaic Dietary Laws, okay.
0: Well, well no, 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 the, the, the notice about Sam sweet Butter is an advertisement, right? And wow, that Well, when they did oh, the OCR, when well, when they did the optical character recognition of the paper, it probably made its way into the text, right?
1: Okay, that was just my bad. Now, this is actually a good one. Representative McFadden outspoken in condemning Jews. Nazi activities in this country have been brought to a head by the first open attack on the Jews of America by the Friends of New Germany. Hitler organization in the United States which has proclaimed a boycott on the Jews. The following is the 11th of a series of articles detailing the rise and growth of the Nazi-inspired anti-Semitic movement in this country and all its ramifications. The articles are based on an exhaustive investigation of Nazi propaganda activities in this country and in Germany for a period of over a year. Congressman Louis T. McFadden, Republican of Pennsylvania, is idol of the Silver Shirts and otherwise the champion of anti Semitism in the great legislative chamber of the United States government. In his house, in his office, in the House office building at Washington, McFadden denied to this reporter that he is personally anti-Semitic. Some of my best friends are Jews, McFadden explained. In these words, which have become so familiar to the reporter, many of the world's most violent anti-Semites have declared their friendship for the Jews. In precisely the same terminology, the most bitter anti-Semite in the entire realm of Hitlerdom, Julius Streicher, the Nazi commissar in Nuremberg, told me that at the core he was a friend of Jews. Obernitz, his lieutenant who has led many pogroms against the distressed Bavarian Jews, said the same thing. Boulder von Schirach, leader of the Hitler Youth Movement, which frequently directs its operations against Jews, said he is personally not anti-Semitic. And now McFadden. McFadden is a Republican, although he received the support of a large Democratic bloc at the last election. He hails from the eastern part of Pennsylvania, wherein many Germans live and exercise franchise. He was a successful banker before he came to Congress, having worked his way from office boy to the presidency of the First National Bank in Canton, Pennsylvania. That's kind of a slur to say he was an office boy. When he was a college-educated man who was an entry-level banker, he wasn't an office boy. Wasn't he
0: wasn't he? an entry-level level banker. He was elected cashier, and that was that. That was a higher position within the bank. That that wasn't even though it's called cashier, it seems like. And, and entry length was no, no that, that meant that he was in charge of the, the, um, the, the accounting, I believe, for that bank. It, it, it means more than it sounds to the. To, to All right, the and to ear. say
1: that Julius Streicher is a Nazi commissar, that's a uniquely communist word. And this is 1934, and they're acting as though Germany had pogroms. I don't think there'd been a single pogrom in Germany in decades, had there? I mean, this was this four years before Kristallnacht. So, who are they to say that there were pogroms in Germany in 1934? This is absurd. And I don't think Julius Stryker would have said any of his friends were Jews. This, this article, I mean, local people actually read this newspaper and none of them objected. They should have torched the building.
0: I I want to know what they mean by um, many Germans living in eastern Pennsylvania and exercising franchise.
1: I guess they object to Americans of German ancestry having the right to vote.
0: I think that the bank cashier is above the tellers. I'm not positive, right? I I don't really know how banks work, and I don't know how they worked back then. But it seems to me the cashier is a higher position than it sounds uh, on its surface.
1: And here's a little bit of speculation and conjecture. The reporter writes, I do not know what, if any, official connection exists between McFadden and the Silver Shirts. If there should be any official connection, it is maintained as a deep secret. McFadden himself denies that he is associated with the Silver Shirts, but on questioning, he admitted that he knew Pelly, the Clairauden communicant with supernatural powers and the leader of the Silver Legion. What they mean that he's a communicant with supernatural powers? Are they trying to say that Pally's tried to pass himself off as some clairvoyant medium?
0: I, I don't know. It's the, what's that, that, ex, that? No, that exercising franchise statement disturbs me. What's this source again? Can Can you send me a link to this to this, Mike? I, I want this for future use, right? But because um, the the it 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 almost seems like they're complaining that there are German people of German descent in Pennsylvania. Who exercise franchise? Well, which really only means that, that they are able to act as free citizens in the state, right? That,
1: that's they're really voting in a way means, that Jews like, don't like.
0: They're, they're exercise like how dare those Germans act like Germans? How how dare those Germans get to be American citizens? It seems that that's an incredible statement to me. That they're almost complaining so, that these Germans are are um, able to conduct themselves as free citizens. That, that people of German origin in the United States can conduct themselves as free citizens they, they seem to be
1: whining about that I, I think so. I mean the implication there that they 're exercising the franchise if you read between the lines, they resent this they don't yeah, that's the a resentful to, able to st- exercise the franchise that 's what i mean that 's a
0: resentful statement that that 's a highly a resentful, resentful statement against German people in America who who have never um, Seen a pogrom uh, against Jews, right? I mean, that's a highly resentful statement.
1: I mean, imagine if, if I were a reporter back then and I had written something along the lines of Manhattan, where many Jews live and exercise the franchise. Yeah, right. And, and are allowed to exercise franchise, right? You'd be. And this, article was, this article was written by Pat McGrady. It doesn't sound like a very Jewish name.
0: No, that's incredible. Maybe he
1: changed that. I mean, I I want to read the rest of this. This is excellent. During a recent visit in Washington, I met two active members of the Silver Legion. One was in charge of the Washington Bureau of the Silver Shirts, out of which confidential communications attacking the government are dispersed to a select list of subscribers. He told me his name was Jones. Another I overheard in a Washington restaurant. His bitter anti-Jewish attacks interested me, and when I introduced myself, he announced he was Jones. On my second and last visit to McFadden's office, I was in a hurry. The gentleman from Pennsylvania invited me to interrupt a conference with a lean, thoroughly Aryan-looking fellow who questioned me quite closely on the Jewish aspects of the current political situation. The latter, too, introduced himself as Jones. Well, I guess, you know, begging their pardon, since every Jew just picks a name out of a hat if three white people want to go by the name Jones, I mean, if... Bronstein can change his name to Trotsky, it's, it, it'll work fine for a white man, won't it?
0: <laughs> okay, why don't we get to Louis T. McFadden's speech in the House of Representatives from 10th of June,
1: 1932. All right. Oh, you, what, we, we, we have to read this clip here. Just, you'll, you'll, this part is excellent. McFadden's anti Semitic speeches have been widely distributed through the mails, not only from his own office, but from other distribution centers. Moreover, the United States government pays for the distribution of the speeches. Alexander Brin, publisher of a Jewish newspaper in Boston, recently asked that investigation of this practice be made to learn whether or not the congressman's franking privileges had been violated. The publisher charged that C.F. Fulyman or Fullium, who was connected jointly with the Germanischer Bund German alliance as local leader with the George W. Christian's fascist crusaders for economic liberty had sent the speeches through the mails without postage. So they're splitting hairs over that while they're looting the country and lining their pockets with Federal Reserve money, and they want to investigate a congressman for sending mail without postage? That's amazing.
0: Well, that's what franking privileges are. If he he had franking privileges, then then that means he had free mail privileges.
1: This article is excellent. It just shows that the tone. They hold them in very thinly veiled contempt. I mean, it's very, very thinly veiled.
0: Well, that's what they do. Like
1: you said, they they resent that German-Americans have the right to vote. I mean, I'm sure if they were voting for Eugene V. Debs, though, no one would care, would they?
0: No. Okay, Louis T. McFadden's speech in the House of Representatives, 10th of June, 1932. We're not going to finish presenting this speech tonight but we're going to begin it. Mr. Chairman, at the present session of Congress, we have been dealing with the emergency situations. We have been dealing with the effect of things rather than with the cause of things. In this particular discussion, I shall deal with some of the causes that lead up to these proposals. There are underlying principles which are responsible for conditions such as we have at the present time And I shall deal with one of these in particular, which is tremendously important in the consideration that you are now giving to this bill. Mr. Chairman, we have in this country one of the most corrupt institutions the world has ever known. I refer to the Federal Reserve Board and the Federal Reserve Banks. The Federal Reserve Board, a government board, has cheated the government of the United States and the people of the United States out of enough money to pay the national debt. The depredations and iniquities of the Federal Reserve Board has cost this country enough money to pay the national debt several times over. This evil institution has impoverished and ruined the people of the United States and has bankrupted itself and has practically bankrupted our government. It has done this through the defects of the law under which it operates, through the maladministration of that law by the Federal Reserve Board and through the corrupt practices of the money vultures who control it. Some people think the Federal Reserve banks are United States government institutions. It's amazing that most people still think that.
1: Well, they are well not, federal so must be part of the government, right? Yeah, right.
0: They are not government institutions. They are private credit monopolies which prey upon the people of the United States for the benefit of themselves and their foreign customers, foreign and domestic speculators and swindlers and rich and predatory moneylenders. In that dark crew of financial pirates, there are those who would cut a man's throat to get a dollar out of his pocket. There are those who send money into states to buy votes to control our legislation. There are those who maintain international propaganda for the purpose of deceiving us and of wheedling us into the granting of new concessions which will permit them to cover up their past misdeeds and set again in motion their gigantic train of crime. Well, well, it's it's pretty effective, isn't it? Hmm. These 12 private credit monopolies were deceitfully and disloyally foisted upon this country by the bankers who came here from Europe and repaid us for our hospitality by undermining our American institutions. Those bankers took money out of this country to finance Japan in a war against Russia, 1905. They created a reign of terror in Russia with our money in order to help that war along. They instigated the separate peace between Germany and Russia and thus drove a wedge between the allies in the world war. They financed Trotsky's passage from New York to Russia so that he might assist in the destruction of the Russian Empire. Now, you know, conspiracy theorists, if I have to call him that or right-wing patriots, which is probably a better description, have been saying that for years and have been ridiculed, and and here it is from a a United States congressman on the floor of Congress 80 years ago.
1: And this was before he lost re-election, so it's not as though he's some bitter man looking for attention by promulgating outlandish conspiracy theories. He's a sitting member of the United States House of Representatives with 20 years of political experience, and before that, 20-plus years of experience as a professional elite banker. So he's not some quack who just came out of a cabin in the woods and is shouting and ranting and raving on the street corner.
0: They fomented and instigated the Russian Revolution, and they placed a large fund of American dollars at Trotsky's disposal in one of their branch banks in Sweden so that through him Russian homes might be thoroughly broken up and Russian children flung far and wide from their natural protectors. They have since begun the breaking up of American homes and the dispersal of American children. And and let me say that, you know, Adolf Hitler to some degree understood that communism was instigated by the Jews and and that the Bolshevik revolution, the the Bolsheviks in Russia were, were basically financed by, the international Jewish bankers and and were at their disposal. Hitler understood that, and, and McFadden also obviously understands that.
1: Absolutely, communism
0: was financed by Wall Street. Wall Street and, and the City in London owned the, the the USSR from beginning to end.
1: And I think Hitler failed to understand or appreciate just how thoroughly Judaized. American mainstream culture was at that point in time, and how dominated by Jews both America and Britain were.
0: Right, I, I, I think been, right. I you know, think that's country. one of his biggest faults is his failure to understand the amount of control the Jews the amount of control the Jews had over America and England at the time. and he was appealing to England and America on, on the basis of ties of blood. And America, being actually um, well over half of Americans in in nineteen in, in the 1930s were descended from one or both of, of uh, either or both English and German blood, and that's that, that's true of most white Americans today, myself included. I mean, so so um, it, it finds that ties of blood. You would think. You know, blood is thicker than water, but it's just not thicker than money.
1: Exactly, and I find it nothing short of amazing that 15 million American men, mostly white males, went and served during World War II, and the vast majority of them were either English, Irish, Italian, or German in ancestry, and I find it hard to imagine why the Irish Americans would fight a war for Britain, why the Italians and Germans would go fight a war against Germany and Italy. It's baffling, and until so you bring money into it, they sold out. They consciously or or unconsciously sold out.
0: That's the power of propaganda. It's not only propaganda against the Germans, but but it's the the propaganda back home in in convincing people that that they were Americans and that they had to be patriotic and, and worship the flag, basically, and obey the flag, my country, right or wrong, and and all of the other. Um, propaganda tricks the Jews have concocted over the last 120 years it, it's pretty powerful
1: save the world, halt the hun. it has been said
0: that President Wilson was deceived by the attentions of these bankers and by the philanthropic poses they assumed it has been said that when he discovered the manner in which he had been misled by Colonel House and, and this I'd never heard actually He turned against that busybody, that holy monk of the financial empire, and showed him the door. He had the grace to do that, and in my opinion, he deserves great credit for it. President Wilson died a victim of deception. When he came to the presidency, he had certain qualities of mind and heart, which entitled him to a high place in the councils of this nation. But there was one thing he was not, and which he never aspired to be. He was not a banker. He said that he knew very little about banking. It was, therefore, on the advice of others that the iniquitous Federal Reserve Act, the death warrant of American liberty, became law in his administration. Mr. Chairman, there should be no partisanship in matters concerning the banking and currency affairs of this country, and I do not speak with any. In 1912, the National Monetary Association, under the chairmanship, of the late Senator Nelson W. Aldrich made a report and presented a vicious bill called the National Reserve Association Bill. This bill is usually spoken of as the Aldrich Bill. Senator Aldrich did not write the Aldrich Bill. He was the tool but not the accomplice of the European-born bankers who for nearly 20 years have been scheming to set up a central bank in this country and who in 1912 had spent and were continuing to spend vast sums of money to accomplish their purpose. The Aldrich Bill was condemned in the platform upon which Theodore Roosevelt was nominated in the year 1912. He was actually nominated, I think, to the Bull Moose Party, right?
1: Oh, just so you know, Aldrich Aldrich is linked to the Rockefeller family. Were you aware of that?
0: I believe he's the father-in-law of Nelson Rockefeller's father.
1: His daughter, Abby, married John D. Rockefeller Jr., the only son of John D. Rockefeller.
0: And Nelson Rockefeller was named for Nelson Aldrich.
1: Yes. And they say that um, that this Aldrich character was the son of poor European immigrants, an industrial mill hand. I find that difficult to believe.
0: Well, well, I don't know. I don't know much about Nelson Aldrich, except for his sponsorship, Uh, of what we know as the Federal Reserve Act
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and and the treachery behind getting it uh, I I say it cynically right getting it passed
1: they say he was descended from a wealthy English Puritan lawyer who helped found the Massachusetts Bay Colony how many Puritans would have become lawyers that seems bizarre
0: well well, actually there were quite a few back then Uh, actually Uh, lawyers at that time lawyers it, it was an honest profession in a lot of ways right at I wonder, time.
1: though, the um, Federal Reserve Bill, he, he doubtlessly did not write that himself, did he?
0: Well, well right, and, and that's what um, that, that's what McFadden is, is asserting here, right?
1: Oh, and one more thing about Nelson Aldrich. Right from his Wiki page, he was very active in Freemasonry and was treasurer of the Grand Lodge of Rhode Island. That's just an interesting little factoid. So he, he was a, key, he was a, a big friend with the bankers and economists, including Paul Warburg, Abram, Andrew, Henry Davison, and that they were working on an American central bank scheme in 1911, although Wiki doesn't use the term scheme. That's my word.
0: The Alder's Bill was condemned to the platform upon which Theodore Roosevelt was nominated in the year 1912. In that same year, when Woodrow Wilson was nominated, and they ran against each other, right? The Democratic platform, as adopted at the Baltimore Convention, expressly stated, we are opposed to the Aldrich Plan for a central bank. This was plain language. The men who ruled the Democratic Party then promised the people that if they were returned to power, there would be no central bank established here while they held the reins of government. Thirteen months later, that promise was broken, and the Wilson administration, under the tutelage of those sinister Wall Street figures who stood behind Colonel House established here in our free country the worm eaten monarchical institution of the King's Bank to control us from the top downward. It's a shame. I don't know if, if, if um, McSadden is speaking cynically. The King's Bank has never been the King's Bank, right? Not, not the Bank of England by any
1: means, right? Well, and the from the cradle so, And the speech is put in quotes, though. Well, what well, so yes, it would, is. That would suggest that when he delivered it, he had a cynical tone.
0: but, but it's still called a worm-eaten monarchical institution, right?
1: Hmm. Oh. Although we would know it to be a Jewish monarchy.
0: I'll abbreviate the beginning of the last sentence and repeat it. They establish here in our free country the worm-eaten monarchical institution of the King's Bank to control us from the top downward and to shackle us from the cradle to the grave. They have done that. They shackle us with debt. The Federal Reserve Act destroyed our old and characteristic way of doing business. It discriminated against our one main commercial paper, the finest in the world. It set up the antiquated two-name paper, which is the present curse of this country and which wrecked every country which has ever given its scope. It fastened down upon this country the very tyranny from which the framers of the Constitution sought to save us. And let me say that one-name paper, the issuer, is responsible for the debt with two-name paper. The the two-name paper which we have, which McFadden is referring to, is actually the... um, the, the Federal Reserve notes issued by the banks, but the government is responsible for the debt. And, and, um, and, and, and that's the, the treachery of the Federal Reserve, right? Hmm. The, the people are ultimately responsible for the debts that the, bankers, that the banks write.
1: Additionally, the government has to pay a premium. Correct me if I'm wrong, but when, if the Federal Reserve prints a trillion dollars today and the government wants access to that money... The Federal Reserve may charge a 3 or 4 or 5% premium because they're printing the money and spending it in the circulation, making it available. So the government now owes them more money than they've just printed, and since you don't have more money than has been printed, they're perpetually in debt because the bankers decide how much is to be printed, and whenever they print something, you owe 5% more or 4% more than they've printed, and you can never repay them then because you owe them more money than is in existence.
0: Well, well, it's actually the demand which decides how much money is printed provided the banks extend the credit. And when they extend the credit, that creates the money. When the government, the government demands money by printing bonds and putting the bonds on the market with the bankers who, who, who actually make a handsome margin simply selling the bonds to other creditors such as the government of China the government of India, where other Jews in those banks print money from nothing and pay the and, and buy the bond. It, it's a scam. It's a whole, it, it's a scheme.
1: So it, it, then they have a claim on our labor or the product of our labor.
0: Well, absolutely.
1: They're using money that they printed from nothing. They printed right. it from thin air to buy real materials, real goods, real right. property.
0: Right, and and they print money to the people they're, they're actually creating debt notes that the people are ultimately responsible for. That's the two name paper that McFadden is is um, pointing out here.
1: And it's interesting to note on old money, and by old, I mean as recently as the 30s, it states, <laughs> this certifies that there has been deposited in the Treasury of the United States of America one silver dollar payable to the bearer on demand, $1 silver certificate, series of 1926, Washington, D.C., Secretary of the Treasury, I can't quite make out the name, but the, the money nowadays, it's redeemable and nothing. There's well, nothing on deposit with the Treasury.
0: Well, well, originally, the dollar was actually defined. It was defined as a fixed amount of gold mm-hmm. or silver.
1: In the Constitution.
0: I think it was in the Constitution, but I'm not positive.
1: And correct me if I'm wrong, but they have the power to coin money. It's explicitly declared that Congress shall have the power to coin money. Very specific. It doesn't say anything about printing money.
0: The actual definition of the dollar is, is not in the Constitution itself, but it, it, it is amongst the, the earliest um, Acts of Congress, I believe. It was actually defined. One of the greatest battles for the preservation of this republic was fought out here in Jackson's day, Andrew Jackson, when the Second Bank of the United States, which was founded upon the same false principles as those which are here exemplified in the Federal Reserve Act, was hurled out of existence after the downfall of the second bank of the United States in 1837 the country was warned against the dangers that might ensue if the predatory interests after being cast out should come back in disguise and unite themselves to the executive and through him acquire control of the government that is what the predatory interest did when it came back in the livery of hypocrisy and other false pretenses, obtained the passage of the Federal Reserve Act. The danger that the country was warned against came upon us and is shown in the long train of horrors attendant upon the affairs of the traitorous and dishonest Federal Reserve Board, and the Federal Reserve banks are fully liable. This is an era of finance crime, and in the financing of crime, The Federal Reserve Board does not play the part of a disinterested spectator. It has been said that the draftsman who was employed to write the text of the Federal Reserve Bill used a text of the Aldrich Bill for his purpose. It has been said that the language of the Aldrich Bill was used because the Aldrich Bill had been drawn up by expert lawyers and seemed to be appropriate. It was indeed drawn up by lawyers. The Aldrich Bill was created by acceptance bankers of European origin in New York City. It was a copy and, in general, a translation of the statutes of the Reichsbank and other European central banks. In other words, it all came from the same House of Rothschild.
1: Bill, when they um, did the Federal Reserve, that flew in the face of, I found it, the Coinage Act of 1792, which defined a dollar by a silver weight of 371.25 grains of pure silver. And it also stated that neither the federal nor state governments may emit paper money or bills of credit, and that the only possible legal legal tender, if any, is silver and gold. And under Article One, Section 8 of the Constitution, it states that Congress has the power to coin money, regulate the value thereof, and of foreign coin, and fix the standard of weights and measures. Nowhere does it say they have the power to print money or to assign their rights or duties or obligations to a third party or a non-governmental entity. So any money that is not printed by the United States government, it's meaningless. It might as well be monopoly money if it's coming from some private-run central bank.
0: Well, it basically is monopoly money. There's no doubt.
1: Half a million dollars was
0: spent one part of the propaganda organized by those same European bankers for the purpose of misleading public opinion in regard to it, and for the purpose of giving Congress the impression that there was an overwhelming popular demand for that kind of banking legislation and the kind of currency that goes with it, namely an asset currency based on human debts and obligations instead of an honest currency based on gold and silver values. Dr. H. Parker Willis had been employed by the Wall Street bankers and propagandists, and when the Aldrich measure came to naught, he obtained employment with Carter Glass, to assist in drawing a banking bill for the Wilson administration. He appropriated the text of the Aldrich bill for his purpose. There is no secret about it. The text of the Federal Reserve Act was tainted from the beginning. Not all of the Democratic members of the 63rd Congress voted for this great deception. Some of them remembered the teachings of Jefferson and through the years there had been no criticisms of the Federal Reserve Board and Federal Reserve Bank so honest so outspoken and so unsparingly as those which have been voiced here by Democrats. Again, although a number of Republicans voted for the Federal Reserve Act, the wisest and most conservative members of the Republican Party would have nothing to do with it and voted against it. We we have to remember that at this time the Republican Party was seen as the party of the rich, the Northeastern establishment, the Democratic Party was the party of, of the working man, the middle class, and, and especially in the South, right? A few days before the bill came to a vote, Senator Henry Cabot Lodge of Massachusetts wrote to Senator John W. Weeks as follows. This is dated New York City, December 17, 1913. My dear Senator Weeks, Throughout my public life, I have supported all measures designed to take the government out of the banking business. This bill puts the government into the banking business as never before in our history and makes, as I understand it, all notes, government notes, when they should be bank notes. The powers vested in the Federal Reserve Board seem to me highly dangerous, especially where there is political control of the board. I should be sorry to hold stock in a bank, Subject to such domination, the bill as it stands seems to me to open the day to a vast open the way to a vast inflation of the currency. There is no necessity of dwelling upon this point after the remarkable and most powerful argument of the senior senator from New York. I can be content here to follow the example of the English candidate for parliament who saw it enough to say to say ditto to Mr. Burke. I will merely add that I do not like to think that any law can be passed which will make it possible to submerge the gold standard in a flood of irredeemable paper currency. Well, they actually legally made the currency irredeemable, right? Because you can't redeem it. I had hoped to support this bill, but I cannot vote for it as it stands because it seems to me to be To contain features and to rest upon principles in the highest degree menacing to our prosperity, to stability in business, and to the general welfare of the people of the United States. Signed, very sincerely yours, Henry Cabot Lodge. And and let me say at this time, and I should have added it before, that the Democratic Party at this time was seen as the conservative party, right? I'm sorry, go on.
1: Henry Cabot Lodge was the Senate Majority Leader at the time, And according to Wiki, he had a fierce battle with Wilson over the Treaty of Versailles. He also demanded congressional control over declarations of war. And he he led the charge to refuse to ratify the treaty. And thus, the United States did not join the League of Nations. He was vehemently opposed to that. He also supported restrictions upon immigration. He was a um, public member of the Immigration Restriction League. He wanted literacy tests for immigrants. He said that the country should basically keep its character. And he supported 100% Americanism. He did not want the country flooded and deluged by dregs of, you know, you know, ghettos and European, you know, basically, you know, Balkanized, like the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. And interestingly enough, Henry Cabot Lodge, would you like to take a guess where he died? He died in a hospital recovering from a surgical procedure in 1924.
0: That was interesting because that, um, you, you had a quote on that Wikipedia page on Louis McFadden from a senator named um, David Reed. And Reed wrote McFadden off as being a lunatic, right? However, Reed was also a major proponent of that immigration bill. And the immigration bill in 1924 actually sought to keep out the the, um, southern and eastern Europeans.
1: Mm -hmm. It basically established a numerical system, I think, whereby whatever percentage of the population, certain groups, but it only applied to, I believe, the um, eastern hemisphere. It did not apply to the western hemisphere, so it did nothing in regards to Mestizos from Mexico. It basically looked at the country, I think, in 1890, and whatever percentage the country you were coming from, whatever percentage those ethnics were at the time, that's how much the national immigration number was limited. So if there were, you know, 2 million Italians in 1890, they would be whatever percentage of the population, and then no more than that percentage of all immigrants accepted for the year could be from that country. That was how the system worked. So it basically just said that, you know, we'll accept some people, but we're not going to continue to accept millions upon millions every single year. And it's interesting, like I said, Lodge died in the hospital recovering from surgery for gallstones. That's not very compli- That's not a complicated procedure even back then, is it?
0: Oh, oh no. The gallbladder, gallbladder operations were actually um, quite, quite excessive back then. Mm-hmm. That they were, that they were actually major operations on, until the non-invasive surgical techniques um, developed within the last 25 years
1: he suffered a stroke and then died after the surgery. I wonder how common is that? Am, am I being paranoid here and seeing all these patriots dying in hospitals, or were, were these dangerous procedures?
0: Well, well, the gallbladder operation was actually, at, at that time, it probably was a dangerous procedure. I mean, I, I would like to, to, to think of the possibility of Henry Cabot Lodge's being destroyed also by the end. I, I mean, it, it's, it's um, unlikely, though. Not, not at his age and at that time, and and at the end of his career, I seriously doubt that that there was treachery there. It seems to be that, you know, gallbladder operations were risky operations at that time. So, so I wouldn't jump to conclusions there. I would want to examine the the, the evidence, right? All
1: right.
0: In eighteen years that have passed since Senator Lodge wrote that letter of warning. All of his predictions have come true. The government is in the banking business as never before. Against its will, it has been made the backer of horse thieves and card sharps, bootleggers, smugglers, speculators, and swindlers in all parts of the world. That, that's the 2 main paper, right? The, the Jews write the debt and the government's responsible for it, right? Through the Federal Reserve Board and the Federal Reserve Banks, the riffraff of every country is operating on the public credit of this United States government that that condition still exists today right meanwhile and on account of it we ourselves are in the midst of the greatest depression we have ever known thus the menace to our prosperity so feared by Senator Lodge has indeed struck home from the Atlantic to the Pacific our country has been ravaged and laid waste by the evil practices of the Federal Reserve Board and the Federal Reserve Banks and the interests which control them at no time in our history has the general welfare of the people of the United States been at a lower level or the mind of the people so filled with despair. And, and this and is could 19- just as easily be talking about today. Well, well this is 1932, right? And, and he's already given the country up as lost to the international banking interest. There's no doubt. And, and it was by his time.
1: And it hasn't gotten any better. It's simply gotten progressively worse.
0: Recently, in one of our states, 60,000 dwelling houses and farms were brought under the hammer, in other words, up for bankruptcy auction or or, um, default auction, in a single day. According to the Reverend Father Charles E. Coughlin, who has lately testified before a committee of this house, 71,000 houses and farms in Oakland County, Michigan, have been sold and their erstwhile owners dispossessed. Similar occurrences have probably taken place in every country in the United States. The people who have thus been driven out are the wastage of the Federal Reserve Act. They are the victims of the dishonest and unscrupulous Federal Reserve Board and Federal Reserve Banks. Their children are the new slaves of the auction blocks in the revival here of the institution of human slavery. In 1913, before the Senate Banking and Currency Committee, Mr. Alexander Lassen, Made the following statement, and he's quoting the statement.
1: But the whole you said, um, did you say Oakland County, Michigan, seventy-one thousand houses and farms? Because in nineteen thirty, at the census, there were only two hundred and eleven thousand people in the entire county, and you figure the average family was probably at least three or four people. So it seems the, the the vast majority of homeowners and farm owners were destroyed.
0: Probably. Uh, evidently, I, I mean, he's only quoting Charles Coughlin, so so I I mean I don't know if the number is inflated or 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 not, but it seems that every home in Oakland County, Michigan, would be sold and up for grabs on the auction block. That, that sounds incredible, but that's that's the assertion. To go on to. um McFadden's quote from Mr. Alexander Lassen. But the whole scheme of the Federal Reserve Bank with its commercial paper basis is an impractical, cumbersome machinery. It is simply a cover to find a way to secure the privilege of issuing money and to evade payment of as much tax upon circulation as possible and then control the issue and maintain, instead of reduce, interest rates. It is a system that, if inaugurated, will prove to the advantage of the few and the detriment of the people of the United States. It will mean continued shortage of actual money and further extension of credits. For when there is a lack of real money, people have to borrow to cover their credit to, to their cost. A few days before the Federal Reserve Act was passed, Senator Elihu Root denounced the Federal Reserve bill as an outrage on our liberties and made the following prediction, quote, Long before we wake up from our dreams of prosperity through an inflated currency, our gold, which alone could have kept us from catastrophe, will have vanished, and no rate of interest will tempt it to return. Well, well, it didn't vanish so quick until Franklin Roosevelt confiscated it, right? If ever a prophecy came true, that one did. It was impossible, however, for those luminous and instructed thinkers to control the course of events. On December 23, 1913, the Federal Reserve Bill became law. And that night, Colonel House wrote to his hidden master in Wall Street as follows. I want to say a word of appreciation to you for the silent, but no doubt effective work you have done in the interest of of currency legislation, and to congratulate you that the measure has finally been enacted into law. We all know that an entirely perfect bill, satisfactory to everybody, would have been an impossibility. And I feel quite certain that unless the President stood as firm as he did, we should have likely have had no legislation at all. The bill is a good one in many respects, anyhow good enough to start with and to... Let experience teach us in what direction it needs perfection, which in due time we shall then get. In any event, you have personally good reason to feel gratified with what has been accomplished, end of quote. The words, unless the president had stood firm, as firm as he did, we should likely have no legislation at all, were a gentle reminder that it was Colonel House himself the, in quotes, holy monk who had kept the president firm. The foregoing letter affords striking evidence of the manner in which the predatory interests then sought to control the government of the United States by surrounding the executive with the personality and the influence of a financial Judas. Left to itself and to the conduct of its own legislative functions without pressure from the executive, the Congress would not have passed the Federal Reserve Act. According to Colonel House, and since this was his report to his master, we may believe it to be true. The Federal Reserve Act was passed because Wilson stood firm. In other words, because Wilson was under the guidance and control of the most ferocious usurers in New York through their hireling, Colonel House. The Federal Reserve Act became law the day before Christmas Eve in the year 1913, and shortly afterwards, the German international bankers, Kuhn Loeb & Company, sent one of their partners here to run it. Felix, Max Warburg. Max Warburg? Felix Warburg? I forget. In 19- Paul Warburg? Paul Warburg. That's possible. In 1913, when the Federal Reserve Bill was submitted to the Democratic Caucus, it was a discussion in regard to the form the proposed paper currency should take. The proponents of the Federal Reserve Act and their determination to create a new kind of paper money had not needed to go outside of the Aldrich Bill for that model. By the terms of the Aldrich Bill, banknotes were to be issued by the National Reserve Association and were to be secured partly by gold or lawful money and partly by circulating evidences of debt. The first draft of the Federal Reserve Bill presented the same general plan, that is, for banknotes as opposed to government notes, but with certain differences of regulation. When the provision for the issuance of the Federal Reserve notes was placed before President Wilson, he approved of it. But other Democrats were more mindful of democratic principles and the great protest greeted the plan. Foremost amongst those who denounced it was William Jennings Bryan, the Secretary of State. Bryan wished to have the Federal Reserve notes issued as government obligations. President Wilson had an interview with him and found him adamant. At the conclusion of the interview, Bryan left with the understanding that he would resign if the notes were made banknotes. The President then sent for his secretary and explained the matter to him. Mr. Tumulti went to see Brian, and Brian took from his library shelves a book containing all the Democratic platforms and read extracts from them bearing on the matter of the public currency. Returning to the president, Mr. Tumulti told him what had happened and ventured to the opinion that Mr. Brian was right and Mr. Wilson was wrong. The president then asked Mr. Tumulti to show him where the Democratic Party had in its national platforms ever taken the view indicated by Brian. Mr. Tumulti gave him the book, which he had brought from Bryant's house, and the president read very carefully, plank after plank, on the currency. He then said, I am convinced there is a great deal in what Mr. Bryant says. And thereupon it was arranged that Mr. Tumulti should cede the proponents of the Federal Reserve Bill in an effort to bring about an adjustment of the matter. The remainder of the story may be told in the words of Senator Glass concerning Bryan's opposition to the plan of allowing the proposed Federal Reserve notes to take the form of banknotes and the manner in which President Wilson and the proponents of the Federal Reserve bill yielded to Bryan in return for his support of the measure. Senator Glass makes the following statement, and I quote, The only other feature of the currency bill around which a conflict raged at this time was the note issue provision. Long before I knew it, these are the words of Senator Glass, the president was desperately worried over it. His economic good sense told him the notes should be issued by the banks and not by the government. But some of his advisors told him Mr. Bryan could not be induced to give his support to any bill that did not provide for a government note. There was in the Senate and House a large Bryan, following which, united with a naturally adversary party vote, could prevent legislation. Certain overconfident gentlemen preferred their services in the task of managing Bryan. They did not budge him. When the decision could no longer be po- postponed, the President summoned me to the White House to say he wanted the Federal Reserve notes to be obligations of the United States. I was for an instant speechless, with all the earnestness of my being, I remonstrated, pointing out the unscientific nature of such a thing, as well as the evident inconsistency of it. There is not, in truth, any government obligation here, Mr. President, I exclaimed. It would be a pretense on its face. Was there ever a government note based primarily on the property of banking institutions? Was there ever a government issue not one dollar of which could be put out except by demand of a bank? The suggested government obligation is so remote, never be discerned, I concluded out of breath. Exactly so, Glass, earnestly said the president. Every word you say is true. The government liability is a mere thought. And so, if we can hold to the substance of the thing and give the other fellow the shadow, why not do it, if thereby we may save our bill? That's incredible. Shadow and substance. One can see from this how little President Wilson knew about banking. We're back to the words of Lewis McFadden. Unknowingly, he gave the substance to the international banker and the shadow to the common man. Thus was Bryan circumvented in his efforts to uphold the democratic doctrine of the rights of the people. Thus the unscientific blur upon the bill was perpetrated. The unscientific blur, however, was not the fact that the United States government, by the terms of Bryan's edict, was obliged to assume as an obligation whatever currency was issued. Mr. Bryan was right when he insisted that the United States should preserve its sovereignty over the public currency. The unscientific blur was the nature of the currency itself, a a nature which makes it unfit to be assumed as an obligation of the United States government. It is the worst currency and the most dangerous this country has ever known. When the proponents of the act saw, that the democratic doctrine would not permit them to let the proposed banks issue the new currency as banknotes, they they should have stopped at that. They should not have foisted that kind of currency, namely an asset currency on the United States government. They should not have made the government liable on the private debts of individuals and corporations, and least of all, on the private debts of foreigners. And with that...
1: Essentially, Wilson, by saying that he wanted the notes to be an obligation of the government, he's saying that the Federal Reserve will have the right to put the government in debt and the government will have to make good and honor the debt obligations of the Federal Reserve.
0: Well, well right, and, and that was the, the unintended outcome of Brian's insistence that the notes be government notes, but Brian didn't really, uh, according to McFadden and and McFadden's perspective, that the outcome isn't quite like Brian imagined.
1: Mm -hmm. So, William Jennings Bryan wanted the notes to be actual government notes that government would control, and thus they would be government obligations. Instead, they wind up being government obligations but printed and controlled entirely by private third parties. So, that'd be the equivalent of I going around town and writing checks in your name and you're on the hook for everything that I'm putting in the circulation
0: well well, right that, that's, that, that's exactly the outcome of, of, of the Federal Reserve Act okay we're going to stop here and, and, and we'll pick up at this speech next week and I'm sure the speech was probably over the heads of most congressmen and, and they didn't understand it that because it is a, it, it's yeah, you know the world of finance is quite complex, and that that that's basically what's gotten us into this mess. And and it's a mess that that the profit the profit and machine of the international bankers is just impossible to overcome. And, and as I've often said, you you can't fix it at the voting booth because we can't. Outspend the people that print the money.
1: Well, if you have infinite money, how can how can that be matched? How can that be opposed? Well, and talked.
0: He, he mentioned even then at that time. He mentioned in his speech how, how these people would would send all kinds of money from out of the country into statewide elections in order to influence the outcomes of of of, of legislation. That the ultimate. Um, Writers of legislation are chosen by the international bankers because they're allowed to finance local elections here.
1: Well, what was it that um, Amshell Meyer Rothschild supposedly said? Let me print a nation's money, and I care not who writes the law. Absolutely. Eventually, he'll, eventually, either he or his pawns will be writing the laws.
0: Absolutely. Okay, we'll we'll see you here next week with um, part two of our series on Lewis McFadden. Thank,
1: Thank you. you. Praise Yahweh.